Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. Today, I'm going to talk about being spiritually prepared for adoption, foster care, or raising kiddos with capital letter syndromes. And I really believe in the trickle-down effect. I did an episode on the foundations of adoption. I can't remember exactly what I called it, but I can link it in the show notes. And if you missed that one, it's really important for us when it comes to our spirituality, our religion, our journey through faith to have our make sense of and peace with our past and reframe the beliefs that need reframing. Because it's one thing to say, you know, this is what I believe. This is what God is. This is what he looks like to me. This is my box of religion and everything fits in it. And then all of a sudden you're raising a kiddo with a trauma history or a capital letter syndrome, FASD, ADHD, GAD, SPD, etc., They're neurodivergent, and you're like, this doesn't work for them. Like, they can't regulate in church. The legalistic kind of view that I used to have about religion just did not work with my kiddos. So I want to talk today about spiritually being spiritually prepared. So like I said, if you missed that episode, go back and listen to it. When So when a Christian be decides to become a missionary or start a ministry, there's some training that takes place, right? And often it involves Bible college or leadership trainings at church. Mission, missionaries study the culture of the people they're going to serve. They learn the language, the habits, the customs of the people they're going to serve. Why? Because we know that no one should ever ent- enter the mission field without being prepared. But most of us enter the world of parenting neurodiverse children with capital letter syndromes or adoption and foster care, and we don't have the spiritual training that we need unless we seek it out. And there is some training that's required by states or we get recommended classes and we go to these classes And a lot of it is very secular and humanistic. Not all of it. There are exceptions. But 
oftentimes we don't have any training in how do you approach spirituality with your kiddos when they don't fit into your views. And by that, I mean, like, whatever your particular church believes. Like, maybe your church has this unwritten, unspoken rule that kids should always behave, always be able to regulate, always be listening, never be um, asking questions, or, you know, there's so many different things. And I know that when my four kiddos came home, in air quotes, from Poland, and they were part of our family, and we started going to church, and we'd take up this whole row, all seven of my kids, like, taking up this whole row, and after being National Parents of the Year, I think they wanted to revoke that title, because all of a sudden, wherever I went, my parenting wasn't working, (laughs) And I I don't want to make that the focus of this episode, but in the church, all of a sudden, it was like, you know, they can't sit still, they can't regulate, Um, they're running out of the classroom, some of the kids were stealing things out of the classrooms, but they didn't know. And if your view of Christianity Christianity or spirituality is is when these kids come into your home or when you get a diagnosis and you know there's something off and you're like, I need a diagnosis for this kiddo. There's something that he is not being able to cope with this world. He sees things differently. His senses are overwhelmed all the time. And often these kids were not spiritually prepared And I think that the reason we're not spiritually prepared is not because the Bible has changed or God has changed, but we skip a lot of the verses that really focus on those things. For example, in Isaiah, you know, Jesus was prophesied to you. He was supposed to come and heal the brokenhearted, bind up their wounds, set the physical and spiritual captives free. And to break every yoke, all of these things that he came to do, we think they're supposed to be done like as soon as somebody walks in the church. You shouldn't have any of those issues. They should be gone. And the expectation, what I have found, was more adamant for my kiddos. Like, they're in your family now. They should know the Bible verses. They should know how to be in church. They should know how to respond to an adult. And that's just not true. It just doesn't work that way. That's not biblical. That's not spiritual. And years ago, well, not too many years ago, before I wrote the book, How to Have Peace When Your Kids Are in Chaos, actually, while I was writing the book, I put out this survey, and I asked a group of adoptive and foster parents if they felt that they were spiritually prepared for what was coming in their family. And one respondent said, nothing could prepare us. And somebody else said, the journey brought me closer to Jesus. Raising my hand for both of those. Nothing can really prepare you completely. It is like reading those what-to-expect books and thinking you are ready. Amen? 
Hearing all of the bad instead of only hearing all the fluff. People need to be able to prepare for all aspects. And I totally agree with that respondent. That's why I'm doing this particular episode. And maybe you're already two years into the adoption or two years into the diagnosis and you're like, wait a minute, I can't go back and prepare myself. But you can prepare yourself now for what's next. And somebody else said, I wasn't prepared for how attacked we'd feel at times. I felt the same way. Like, I had no clue. Like, if somebody would have said that in a handbook for parenting, that you're going to be parenting kiddos with capital letter syndromes and trauma histories, you're going to be attacked. What? Why? But, but I was. Okay, somebody else said, yes and no. Having more help from my church family would have been most helpful. And another respondent said to have support from the local church to foster and adopt and also to realize that even when I don't feel like we are always emotionally connected to a child, we are still doing what we are supposed to do. I would say that's a huge part. That statement that she made is a huge part of being spiritually prepared. We are not always going to feel emotionally gushy about connecting to a particular child. We don't feel emotionally gushy about connecting to anyone all the time, right? So to be spiritually prepared, just realizing that as your family is being knit together or that you have, this thought just came to me, I know I'm kind of going off track here for a second, but If you are raising a child with a capital letter syndrome and you're waiting for them to be emotionally gushy connected to you in the way that your other kiddos are, then you might be waiting your whole life. I remember, and I've seen it in lots of kiddos, but I'll use one of my kiddos as an example. When he was going to a friend's house, he didn't talk about how much fun he was going to have with that friend, he talked about that friend's toys and what toy he would play with. And that is not wrong. That's the way his brain worked. And I think of my grandson who he loves ceiling fans. And he's on the spectrum. But his big thing is coming to Nini's house to watch the turn on all the ceiling fans. So that is his connection to me. And that's okay. I don't expect him to be all, I love you, Nini, even even though he will say those words, his connection is different. So I think we need to be spiritually prepared that our kiddos are going to connect at different levels and in different ways, and they might even connect to spirituality and religion in different ways. And I hate to step on anybody's toes, but we often think that if you come to church and let's say there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of praise, that if a kiddo doesn't connect that way and they're not up praising and raising their hands or jumping up and down or whatever your church does, that they're not connecting to Christ 
And that's not true. That is not true. We have to set aside that misleading belief about Christianity. And then the opposite is if your church is very traditional, ritualistic, and silent, and you have a kiddo who gets to church and they can't be silent, and maybe they're, and I've seen this before too, where a kiddo is like (laughs) parroting the pastor and saying what he's saying, you know, right after him. And, oh my goodness, that kid needs to behave. That may be the way that that child is processing what the pastor is saying. And maybe that's his way of connecting. And often when we have a kiddo who has a trauma history and they are listening to something and the way to connect to that is they think that pastor's speaking specifically to them and they're just trying to process it verbally. And I could give like a thousand examples of different ways that kids connect or process or whatever, but we have to get out of our little religious box and look at what the Bible really says. Uh, somebody else said, I don't think it's possible to understand the spiritual battle until you are in it. I wish we had supporters that just committed to praying for us weekly. Oh my goodness, that is so true. So true. We had friends that she actually did these little prayer cloths for us, one for each child, and she was praying for us, and it was just amazing. I could literally feel the difference that those prayers made, especially when we were out of country, and it's so important. Okay, and then the last one I'm going, responder, respondent, I'm going to read is, I've been a Christian for almost 50 years. I am human. It was not walking with God, most of them. But by God's grace, this has probably been the catalyst that forced me to become more Christ-like. Yep, I would say that I've had that experience too because when you are in a difficult situation and you are trying to learn a new way of parenting, You are trying to like dig in and say, wait a minute, this is what I thought about Christianity and it is not working. Then it is going to push you towards Christ and you're going to be seeking, how can I be more Christ-like? And I know I talk about, I did a podcast on three tips for co-regulating and investment parenting. Like when we are doing that proactive investment parenting and co-regulating Oh my goodness, we need so much of God's grace and peace so that we can continue to do those things on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute basis, actually. Okay, now I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the spiritual aspects of adoption. And one of my favorite quotes about the spiritual significance of adoption comes from Russell Moore. He wrote, Adoption is on one hand the gospel, and this adoption tells us who we are as children of the Father. Adoption as gospel tells us about our identity, our inheritance, and our mission as sons of God. Adoption is also defined as mission. In this, adoption tells us our purpose in this age, 
as the people of Christ. Missional adoption spurs us to join Christ in advocating for the helpless and the abandoned. And I will include in the helpless and the abandoned and the rejected kiddos with capital letter syndromes who feel as if they do not fit in to church, to religion, to families, to culture, to I could list a billion things that they feel this guilt and shame for being different. And I included this quote in that survey and I ask what response it evoked. Some of those surveyed responded, we are all adopted into Jesus' kingdom. Adoption is the gospel. We are to share the gospel to all the ends of the earth, including in our homes. So I want to stop on that particular answer and say, well, what does that look like in our homes? Which I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning of this one, but it was a couple of people who attended one of my online workshops who asked me to do a series on spirituality and raising these kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. But so what does it look like in our homes? Does it look like us standing there with stern looks and saying, you know, recite the Bible verse to me? Or does it look like us living out the gospel by saying, wait a minute, what I thought was the gospel isn't. Reframing our beliefs because it may look a little different than pre-diagnosis, pre-adopting children. So it's something that we have to figure out. And another respondent said, if God is the center of your life, how can you not share that with it, that with anyone living in your home? Not to pound it into them, but to share God's love through your actions and behaviors which is kind of what I was talking about just a second ago. What does it look like? What does spirituality and living out your Christian faith and teaching your kiddos about it to the point that they can absorb it and understand according to their personality, what does that look like? Okay. I will, I'm just going to share one more. And this is very similar. As Christians, we have that responsibility to everyone we meet. Why would we not share it with those that we love and provide for daily? I just want to say sharing the gospel is not a forced conversion. It's simply pointing to Christ with actions first and words later. If you've listened to my other podcast episodes or read any of my articles, I talk about that the brain is experience expectant, okay? So we make those connections through our experiences. So if we want to live out our faith, then our kids need to see us experiencing it and connecting with them and loving them on a daily basis. It's not about getting out a pulpit and preaching to your kiddos. It's about living, connecting with them, providing felt safety, helping them with coping mechanisms, co-regulating, 
All of those things are part of what will lead them to feeling loved and then can be a stepping stone for them to finding Christ themselves. Planting seeds. I said I was going to share something practical. Planting seeds. When the new Guires had been part of our family for a few months, we went to our church's Easter cantata. And I took time before to practice outside the moment, tell them what was going to happen. And I read to them the account of the Easter story that, you know, Jesus dying and he's going to be put in a tomb. And that, that year, our church put on like a huge production. The actor portraying Jesus was nailed to a cross. Then his body was removed from the cross and placed in a paper mache tomb. And the kids, I mean, they just sat there in wide-eyed wonder, soaking in the production. And later that night, my son Gregory responded to the altar call and said the prayer of salvation. Remember, though, that the prayer of salvation is not the beginning of a child's spiritual journey. It comes after the plowing the ground, planting the seeds, and careful watering. The work begins long before the hours of your prayers, the Bible study, the worship services. It starts at home. After all, a child cannot appreciate lengthy commentary on Bible verses or worship songs if he does not have a friendly view of God the Father. That's why it's so important for us to work on that proactive investment, co-regulating, felt safety parents. We also have to remember this. A child's view of God will be shaped by his own experiences or his own lens through which he sees the world. So if a child has experienced trauma, he may not understand what a loving father looks like. It is the parent's responsibility to be patient and help transform the child's view, not by lectures, but by showing them by actions and connection and all of those things I just said a minute ago, co-regulating, felt safety. And let me just stop here for a second and say, I don't mean to say that Bible studies or prayer meetings and worship services aren't valuable, I did a Bible study with my kiddos every morning because I was a homeschooler and the studies were very short and to the point. We sang a worship song or two while I played my guitar. But these were more habit-forming ritual moments that helped lay the groundwork for my children's spiritual growth. And sometimes they were sat they were sitting there, you know, twiddling their thumbs or holding a toy and for them to sit there and be able to regulate and be able to just sit perfectly still, mm, not going to happen. And that's why we did the worship song, because there, there were always motions. Get the kids moving. That's really important. So um, I wanna, I'm going to move on to one of the things that I started to teach my kids when they were a little bit older was the 
the practical way of doing what's called SOAP. And SOAP stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. So when my kids were getting a little bit older, we would start this, we would do this a couple times a week where they would copy a scripture that they chose. They would write down their own observation about it with no judgment, how they could apply this to their life, and then write a prayer. Now they kept these in their journal. And then sometimes we would have a time where they would share what they learned. And, and at the same time, there was no judgment and there was no like, oh, you got it all wrong. Theology says, and I'm going to quote this. No, just let the kid begin to process. And they're going to have their own view of what the scripture says. And you will see their personalities come out in what their scriptures say. Or what, for, for example, I'm kind of getting really not making sense there for a second. But my son... My oldest son always found a leadership application in every section of Scripture. And I'm talking about teens here. And another son, he just always found sinful patterns. And then I had another son who would like really dig deep and find these things that I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. And he would draw these messages out that apply to our present culture from the troubles that afflicted heroes in the Bible. And sometimes I'd look at him like, where did you get that? And then one of my girls, it was like she had this for a period of time. She had this message, trust God and other people. And I just want to also point, this is super, super important. Children whether biological, adopted, have to make the decision to follow Christ on their own. They can't ride on your coattails. You can't force them. There is an age of accountability for each person, and it is different for each person. You have to let your kids make their decisions for their spiritual walk. And this is really important. I keep talking about connecting, co-regulating, investment parenting, and you're like, what does that have to do with spirituality? Well, your kids are going to eventually connect the way that you relate to them, how you respond to them, how you help them to God the Father. And if they've had a trauma history, They've come home to you through foster care or adoption. They may have what my friend Sandra Flack calls an orphan spirit. And a lot of us who were not physically orphaned have an orphan spirit. So that's something we have to work on is reframing our belief about where and who, where God was, like when we were going through that difficult period, and what, who God is to us today. So our kids are going to have to reframe that. They have to make that choice. So I just wanted to point that out. And now I'm going to just talk a little bit about isolation and the adoption journey. And I will also say raising kiddos with a capital letter syndrome. So sometimes we are so deep in the trenches 
We can't get out for social events, for seasons, or church activities. And we're working so hard on attachment with these kiddos that any break just to come to church can destroy the work that we've done. So there might be seasons of just cocooning at home and we feel isolated. And I know what that's like. I went through that myself and I got to the period after the adoption was final and um, where people at church were saying, when are you coming back? You know, or when are you going to start teaching again? Or when are you going to do all the stuff you were doing before? Because when my newbies first came home, we didn't go to church or homeschool group for a while. And the leadership was like, what are you, when are you coming back? But when we did return, I kept my kids with me. It was my primary job to attach to them. All of my other commitments were secondary. When we really fully understand the full-time ministry that is fostering or adopting or raising a kiddo with a capital letter syndrome, we shouldn't be shocked when families are like, I can't be there this Sunday because he had such a meltdown yesterday. He's still recovering. Our whole family needs to recover from that. Then we just need to assume we're doing our job. They're doing their job. So if that's you and you're like, you know what? Yesterday it was meltdown, 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 meltdown. Something's off. I need to figure out what's triggering him. But if we go to church on Sunday or if we go to homeschool group on Monday, then we're going to take three or four more days to recover. It's okay. And yes, I am talking about spirituality. It's like counting the cost. Counting the cost. Okay. And I put this in my survey, too, and I'm going to finish up with this. Some of the people that I surveyed reflected on my thoughts when asked, did you feel isolated in your adoption journey? We need more practical support, people to watch the kids, to understand that we can't always leave the house to attend social activities, etc., It would be great if more people came to us or could support us on our turf. So maybe if you're feeling like that, you're not alone. I felt like that a lot. Except I went through what I call my silent years when a couple people challenged me or gave me kind of smart retorts like, well, you adopted the children or, you know, you decided to have a large family. And I just kind of stopped telling people. I isolated myself. Not only was I being isolated, but I was isolating myself and not telling anybody what was going on. And that's one of the reasons I do what I do, because I should have said more. I should have spoken up more. But this is, you know, what she says in this response is it would be great if more people could come to us on our turf. We can't always leave the house to attend social events, etc. And this is a really difficult concept for some people in the body of Christ to understand. As I mentioned, so much of our ministry, ministry in air quotes there, happens in the church building. At least that's what we are told. But some of, some of us are like we're living out this mandate of James 127 
by adopting or fostering physical and social orphans, the next thing we know, we're labeled as uncommitted or backsliders because we can't attend church regularly, be part of a small group or teach Sunday school. When we do come, we risk being labeled bad parents, even though we have successfully parented for years because our new family or a kiddo with a diagnosis can't regulate or refrain from survival mode behaviors at church, such as lying, stealing, or damaging property. And it's a terrible position for the whole family to be in. And that's why we often feel outcast, isolated. As an example, one survey taker explained, we didn't have support when we needed it the most. We felt very isolated with a RAD, that's Reactive Attachment Disorder, child was explosive at home, yet pleasant in public. No one from our former church reached out, even in the situation when they knew there were major problems. As a Christian, I expected support from the church. When I didn't find it there, I, re- I turned to other sources. Isn't that sad? That's so sad, but it's very common. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm not here like shaming the church or slamming anyone. I just want you to know that if these things that I'm talking about right now are you, you're not alone. You're not alone. And if you begin to dig into the scriptures and find out what Jesus really says about the broken, about breaking every yoke, about healing, then it looks a little bit differently than I used to years and years ago thought it looked. It doesn't look like sitting up straight in church. It doesn't look like attending every church service. And for kiddos with capital letter syndromes too, I think I've mentioned this book before, um, On the Spectrum. I have to look up the author's name, but oh my goodness. Listening to that book helped me so much. And he talks about spirituality. And he talks about commitment. And he talks about counting the cost when something is going to be sensory overload for him, and he's on the spectrum, and he knows it's going to take days to recover, then sometimes he doesn't do that. And often we're told in the church body that you are not committed, or you're not a Christian or a Christ follower, if you're not in church every Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday. And I don't believe that anymore. And I don't believe that Christ doesn't understand kiddos with capital letter syndromes and trauma histories, i.e. results of the fall, the curse, which I talk about on the other podcast that I said I would link in this one. (sighs) This is a tough subject, so I'm trying to finish up here, but I feel like I keep getting more thoughts. And by the way, I have a whole chapter in my book, How to Have Peace When Your Kids Are in Chaos, on the spiritual and missional aspects of adoption, and I would add capital letter syndromes. And I have this survey. I have a lot of the responses from this survey in that chapter. So if it's like encouraging to you to not feel so isolated to read what other people are saying, 
I think it's a, it's a great chapter to read. And I will, I wanted to talk about isolation and the extended family, so I'll just touch on that real quick before I close. Often the support is lacking in those closest to us. One respondent wrote that family support is lacking because loved ones often don't understand or rather refuse to accept the role trauma and abandonment plays in children's behavior. As a result, we, are, we often feel judged by them for the way we respond to our child or discuss why she's acting this way. It's so true. I struggled and still do with my family understanding the role trauma has played in my kiddos' lives, from the reactions, the behaviors, to whether they felt safe or not. It was as if they were in denial that anything bad, in air quotes, had happened to my kiddos before they came home through adoption. All of their issues and inability to regulate or feel safe were my fault, in my mind and in theirs, in my mind for a season till I began to learn more. I felt like I went from being an okay parent to being one who was a total failure. And not just with my children who had come home through adoption, but my kiddos who were on the spectrum, who had a capital letter syndrome. When I had family members telling me I need to do A, B, and C to get them to straighten up and, you know, do what was expected of them and be respectful. And my one of my daughters who was on the spectrum and has a very high IQ. She had that very high and very verbal from the time she was really small, like a toddler. And she would correct adults on facts, things like that. And people were telling me all the time, I needed to make her behave. And I'm like, mm, she's not misbehaving. She's correcting you because you were wrong. And that's just something that people need to adjust to. I'm not going to get into that. So then you get the, like I said, the unsolicited advice. You know what you need to do with that kid? Something as simple as a cup of coffee and a non-judgmental ear can make a world of difference. So think of this. I'm going to finish that episode. Here is your cup of coffee and your non-judgmental ear. You know, you can email me if you have any questions, if you have any situations where you're like, or you listen to this episode and you're like, oh my goodness, those respondents, that was me, 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 me. Think of this as your, your invitation to enter into the conversation. And I'm telling you, as my part of the conversation, you are not alone. Drink your coffee with me. And we can together make a world of difference by reframing our beliefs, meeting our kids where they are, co-regulating, providing felt safety, and realizing that they are not going to approach spirituality or religion or Christianity in the ways that we have been taught that it's supposed to be approached. So thanks for joining me today, and I will see you next week. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on TraumaInformedParenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at trauma-informedparenting.com.